Welcome to Women on the Line, a community radio national feminist current affairs program featuring the voices of women and gender diverse people. Produced at 3CR Community Radio in Nam, Melbourne and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Fung Tran. Women on the Line acknowledges that this program is produced and presented on the land of the Rwandri people of the Kula Nations and that their sovereignty was never ceded. We acknowledge their elders past and present, as well as the traditional owners of the land on which you're hearing us from. For this week's episode, we speak with Rosa Campbell, who is a historian and writer. She holds a PhD in history from the University of Cambridge and is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Edinburgh. She works on the global history of feminism and often writes for a public audience at Overland, Mianjin, The White Review and Public Books. She has also led public history projects with cultural institutions. In this episode, Rosa uses the digital map she has created for Overland to take us through the history of women's sport and fitness culture in Sydney and around the world the role of sport in women's liberation movements, and how the historical struggle for cis women in sport is linked to the current struggle for trans women in sport. Rosa, thank you so much for joining us on Women on the Line. It's such a pleasure to be able to speak to you today. Oh, great to speak to you too. Thanks for having me. I wanted to start by asking you about your research and how you came to focus on the history of women's sport and looking at women's liberation movement um, through sport and fitness culture? Um, That's a great question. So my my research, the work I do, so I'm a historian of feminism and actually I was surprised to encounter women's sport as much as I did in the periodicals, so in the newspapers and media produced by the women's liberation movement of the 1970s and 80s in Australia when I was working on my doctoral project, um, which is a global history of Australian women's liberation. So my work makes an intervention into the kinds of stories that we tell about feminism. So usually when we, when we talk about the women's liberation movement of the 1970s, and even the way that we talk about women's movements, movements for gender justice, more broadly, we usually place them in the national context. Okay. So like, We talk about Australian women's liberation or the US feminist movement or black feminism, black British feminism, for example, or Indian feminism, right? So the the way that feminism is discussed is contained by the nation. And I guess what I try to do is I try to do something different. So in my research so far, I've, I've looked at how things like global political events, like wars and migrations, as well as the movement of ideas and texts, so like books uh, across borders, impacted feminism in Australia in the, in the late 20th century. And so I really found that um, in my research, I found that the that women of colour and women from the global south were key to feminism in Australia in the late 20th century. And that was either through their direct, direct patterns of migration, so... Greek and Italian women, for example, were very important in Melbourne women's movements for health. Uh, and there was there was a kind of changing, um, we might not think of Greek and Italian women as women of colour today, but that shows how race changes over time as well. And I think women, for example, from Vietnam and China were really important at the level of ideas. 
So women in Australia were really inspired by communist women from China and women from Vietnam and hosted visits of them to both and visited China and Vietnam themselves and were very interested in the kind of rights or the way that those women had seemed to gain lots of rights after the Vietnam War and the revolution in China. So, uh, and they weren't, I think there was, there's a lot of complexities about that, about the kind of, um, there's lots of complexities about that, but that's what my PhD, that's what my doctoral research looked at. I guess the history of women's sport. So I made this map for the amazing um, Pride Revolutions exhibition in at the State Library of New South Wales. And I was so lucky to be able to make it because I had noticed in an amazing periodical called Girls Own, which is maybe my, one of my favourite periodicals of the Sydney Women's Liberation Movement because of its incredible design aesthetic. So as somebody who's into zine making as a young person, although I'm hopefully still young, um, but like <laughs> as a teenager, I was really into zines and zine making. And the, the girls' own aesthetic really resembles like the zine. So I was, I was really drawn to it. Uh, it's very beautifully laid up using spot colours and, and particular kind of risograph technologies and um, those and early print, like sort of early printing techniques that was, and it was printed at the Women's Warehouse in Ultimo, which is a, an amazing site of Sydney Women's Liberation Activism. But as a part of that magazine, as a part of that newspaper, Girls Own, there's a page called The Feminist Athlete which is a kind of regular column that, that women write about. And I was really intrigued by this, I guess. And I, and I parked it because I knew that, okay, this doesn't have anything to do with the global history of Australian women's liberation. So I can't go in my PhD, but I'm gonna park that and I'm gonna come back to that. So, because as historians, I think the most amazing thing about history is, that, is when the sources surprise you. And if there's a source that surprises or confuses you, there, that's where you should go. So I was confused and surprised, or not confused, but I was surprised by the feminist athlete column. And I was and I was intrigued, I guess, because the way that I had understand it, understood how feminists had actually thought about sport and fitness culture, I suppose was from a more like right girl perspective, right? So like a 1990s rights, not diets perspective, which actually doesn't really center sport and fitness culture. It has a really strong critique of the way that, for example, in the 1980s and 1990s, running is co-opted by, I suppose, like ideas around bodily perfection, really skinny, skinniness, whiteness particularly, uh, and that there's this really strong critique, important critique from the right girl movement about that kind of, of diet culture, right? So maybe, and but maybe I, so I was surprised by this earlier focus on sport and as a sporty feminist myself these days, who has come to sport, I suppose, quite late in life. So definitely someone who didn't have a great experience of PE, being a nerd, you know, they, all those kind of things that sometimes queer people have, feminists have, those experiences were definitely my experiences. So coming to sport later in life, I wondered how feminists of the 70s had conceived of that. And so I found this column, Feminist Athlete, and was able to um, use it for the map that I made. I wanted to go back to looking at the attitudes towards women's sports in the 70s and 80s. Looking at the map that you created, uh, it features 
you know, different clubs that were operating at the time, um, ways in which women created those opportunities for themselves, were able to engage in in sport on their own terms. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that, how these things came to be. Yeah, definitely. So I guess one of the, I suppose, extraordinary stories about women's sport that I like to tell to sort of to, to highlight the period or to kind of gloss the period, show to pe- people how much things have really changed is the story of Catherine Switzer, a 19 year old woman who she's in, actually, it's, an, it's a story from the US, but Australian women are very interested in this story too. So she's a, she's a 19 year old, really talented athlete. And she is start, studying as a journalist at Syracuse university. And her coach keeps on, she, she trains with a men's team. So often women who are talented athletes uh, and girls as well, who were talented or enthusiastic athletes and really demanded to play sport in um, the late 1960s and through the 1970s uh, until the kind of explosion of the feminist movement where women were like, we're just going to do it for ourselves. They would train with men's teams. And I think that seems really simple. But actually, to me, that is exactly, that shows to me exactly how the gender binary works. Because what it says is women don't play sport, women don't run, in Catherine Switzer's case, and to the extent that there is actually no team for you to join. Okay? So Catherine Switzer is forced to train with the men, or she trains with the men, and she's excellent, and her, but her coach keeps telling her and telling the whole team, she's the only woman on the team, keeps telling the team about the success, all the successes that people have had at the Boston Marathon, okay, which he, the coach, had done 15 times. And Switzer finally is like, oh, my God, I could run that. I'm running 10 miles a night. I'm studying for, ju- for journalism. I'm super talented. I run it. I outpace the men. I could run 26 miles, no worries. And then his, her coach says, no dame has ever run the Boston because it's a, it's basically an all-male space and it's an all-male event, okay? So she run, she writes away for – she chips away at her coach and eventually he kind of says, okay, okay, like if you really want to do it, let's do it. So she writes away and she has to degenderize her name. So she, she, sends, um, she sends a kind of application form and she just signs it K Switzer. So she doesn't identify as a woman. She's kind of – and she, it's presumed that she's a man. And she, so she receives her number, which is now the iconic 261. And she goes to the Boston Marathon. And Jen runs with her team. She starts running with her teammates. There's the questions around whether or not she'll wear lipstick. And she's like, I really want to wear lipstick. And they're like, you should rub the lipstick off because people will know you're a woman. And everything seems fine. She keeps the lipstick on. She wears her, like, gold earrings. You know, she's quite a feminine woman. The men at the start line are quite, the the other male athletes are quite supportive of her, maybe a little bit patronizing. And she talks about this in her book, Marathon Woman. So she starts and it's all fine. And then by kilometer, kilometer eight, she hears this sound behind her, which is the scraping of leather shoes, right? So she hears these, these leather shoes coming up behind her and all around her are people running in sports trainers. So she can really hear that it's different. And it turns out that it's a race official. And there are photos of it from the time and they're they're really shocking even now because his face is so angry 
and he basically grabs Switzer by her shirt and screams in her face, get the hell out of my race and give me those numbers. So he assaults her, basically. And her teammates, including her kind of like hench coach, um, managed to fight her off. And she, she recalls wetting her pants a bit at the violence of it. And she says, um, I, was, I was so shocked at how helpless I, a strong woman, felt. And that there was this power that was terrifying. But she manages to finish the race and, and complete it in four hours, 20 minutes. So I guess I just tell that story to set the scene in terms of like the discrimination that women faced not so long ago when they wanted to compete in in events, in sports events alongside men. So that's kind of the context into onto which women's liberation explodes in the US and Australia. And Australian women are really aware of Catherine Switzer's race when they start their own sporting teams. I think the Switzer story is interesting because she is an elite athlete. And women's liberation also says you don't have to be elite, you don't have to be amazing, you don't have to you don't have to compete you don't have to be so good that you'll be allowed to compete on the men's team. You can be, you can just be regular and sports for you. So I think that's, that's an intervention that they make that's a little later. And that's the intervention that we see in the map with like everything from women's circus to women's so- soccer to, you know, amazing fire eating, women's fire eating, those, all those kind of things that uh, develop from that from that moment, women's self-defense, all that is about to explode. It's such a radical way to look at sport and Mm. what, what role sport can play in the life of an individual, but also as a community, as, and as a society, breaking away from, you know, being hyper competitive, hyper competitive and individualistic and like you said, believing in sport or being passionate about sport for a myriad of reasons and everyone's included and everyone, yeah, sport is for everyone. Absolutely. And the, the mental health impact of sport, which we know now, right? So we really know about the mental health impact of sport and we're probably the first generation that do know that. I mean, athletes have always said that they feel good after competing, but that wasn't necessarily that that was something that was democratically available to everyone. So, you know, you just go for a quick 20 minute run and you feel a lot better. So the mental health impacts of sport are something that women, the women's liberation movement were talking about in the 1970s. Maybe they weren't talking about it in exactly the same way as we were, like not necessarily in terms of mental health, but in terms of feeling good in your body, team sports where you feel good as a team, afterwards uh they were definitely talking about that and i think the other thing that they were really talking about where the legacy of their kind of uh the way that they conceptualize sport can be seen today is in movements like this girl can and strong not skinny right so these are movements that talk about how sports for everyone is for everybody type you don't have to be you, the point of being doing sport as a woman is not to become really thin it's, or, or to have an unhealthy body type, it's to become really strong and to feel strong in yourself, whatever that is. It doesn't mean you have to lift loads. It just means you feel like you're inhabiting your body and being strong in the way that you can. And that's, that's exactly what women in the 1970s were saying. So let me just read a little quote. So this is about, this is from women who began their own gym and they said, 
because they'd been visiting gyms that were mostly frequented by men and they wrote they wrote in the in girls own that the most commercial gyms are overpriced overcrowded with an overemphasis on the stereotypical body beautiful we're getting together a gym that will be accessible to a large range of women including young women old women migrant women black women single women mums and everyone else so that to me is like the spirit of those inclusive sporting movements today but we see how they we see the legacy in women's liberation following on from that i wanted to ask you about the the role that sport plays in queer and lesbian culture um, using sport as a vehicle to fight homophobia so could you talk about that in the context of uh, your research into sports movements in across sydney yeah so i mean the most the most excellent example i suppose of that is flying bats football team so they're the largest lesbian soccer club but they're totally inclusive club so they incorporate cis and trans women queer people and allies uh and the club was founded in 1985 by a group of lesbian women who were sort of who were like living together in a share house um in water street and Campdown. so i was I, I was able to use they've done some amazing oral history interviews with their club members, including past and present club members, which I drew on in my research. And they talked about how important it was. So some of their some of their early members talked about how important it was for them to be part of a club that was a majority lesbian club or a majority queer club. And you know, she people described it as heavenly, right? So Alison Himmelreich, who was one of the members of the Flying Bats said that it was so heavenly to meet all these lesbians and think I'm not the only gay in the village, which I think is such a, such a like lovely way of thinking about the way that sport can offer real community for people in terms of sexuality and gender. And there's, I mean, the Flying Bats continue today and there's great examples of other inclusive sports like Queer Sporting Alliance in based in Melbourne is, is a great example of uh, inclusive sports club that includes people and offers community to all queer people through sport. And what impact has that had then on the broader society? So you were saying mm. for people who are queer, it offered for them a space, a safe space, a sense of community where they could play sport or get fit and and feel, like you said, like they weren't the only gay person there. Um, but I w- was wondering if you talk about the impact that this would have on the broader society. An example I think of is the AFLW today and how there are so many openly queer women who mm. play in the league and <clears throat> what that does for people who are fans of the sport, who love watching the sport to see how open and celebrated queer women are. Yeah, that that's right. Yeah, that's right. I think I think that's absolutely right. I think it me- means basically that these people paved the way for being an out athlete. That's what I would say. And I mean, I loved. I don't know if you saw it, but it's so great. It's uh, after the lionesses won the Euros. That's right, isn't it? Last year, after the lionesses won the Euros, there was a map that was created, which was a was a similar. It was a digital map, and obviously, I created a digital map of city women's sports. So I was very interested in digital mapping projects broadly. And this map was a was a map that showed all the queer and lesbian interconnections. So sort of like the map from the L word, 
um, the, what's it called? The chart, the chart from the L word. The chart was made about women's soccer. So women's football. And I think it was including, it was the Lionesses, but it might've included other clubs as well. I think it, I think it might've been Europe wide or it, it wouldn't have been worldwide because I think uh, that that would have just been, that would map would have broke the internet. There are, cause there are so many queer connections globally in women's soccer. So, but it was a, it was a, it was a hilarious and, and, a, and a super intervention. And it just showed you exactly like what it means today to be, to be an out athlete. Yeah. I guess I would say, I guess I would say that there is still lots of work to be done in terms of the inclusion of trans women in women's sport. I think history can really help us here because I think there's a sense, unfortunate sense at the moment that cis women's rights and trans women's rights are counterposed. I think there's a really pernicious, violent idea at the moment where sport has become a major fault line of for trans exclusionary radical feminists and the far right who are who have forged a really have forged a successful alliance to stop trans women from competing in sport in the sport that they love. So I think there's this idea that trans women are actually biological men who seek to do violent harm to cisgendered women by invading women's spaces is the way it's put. Obviously, we would place invading in scare quotes, including things like sports teams and change rooms and toilets and women's refuges and prisons, women's prisons, which obviously, you know, there's a lot to say about like as if women's prisons aren't already extremely violent spaces. And, but it is not trans women who are doing violence in women's prisons, it's police and prison officers. So just to, just to say that, but, but just on sport, like it's absolutely not true and it's not an oppressive pattern. So violence against women absolutely does not work that way. And we see this through looking at, for example, the, the, the example of the Spanish football team, right? Who won, who've recently won the world cup against serious patriarchal mismanagement from the coaches and 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 sexual assault i suppose when with that forcible kiss after the final jenny on that was inflicted on jenny hermosa by luis rubiales and we see exactly where violence against women and the the challenges to women's sport come from and it is not from transgendered women it's from patriarchy violence and cisgender and violence from cisgendered men. And we saw the FA, you know, we saw the FA Cup, absolutely the Spanish FA Cup, the top brass from Spain, the Spanish football association close ranks around those men, right? And it was because of outcry by trans women, cis women, feminists all across the gender spectrum that Rubiales and Vilda have been forced to resign. And that, so, but to me, that exactly shows where the threat to women's sport is. And it is absolutely not trans women who face exactly what cis women face. And the history of women's sport shows us that, in that women who fought to play sport in the past and sometimes in the present face exactly the kind of things that trans women face now when they seek to play women's sport. So they faced bannings, they were forced off courts, they were pulled out of marathons like Kathy Switzer in Kathy Switzer's case. There were in the in a great in this great book that um 
Marion Stell and Heather Reed have written called Women in Boots, Football and Feminism in the 1970s. They show how, as women and girls demanded to play football in Australia, so cis women and girls demanded to play football in Australia, there was a huge panic over bathrooms. Similarly to how there is a huge panic today over bathrooms and change rooms and women's sport, where coaches and officials asked where will women get changed? And instead of building appropriate facilities where everybody could change with dignity, they were just told, women were just told they couldn't play. And that was the end of the story. So I think that to me is is like where we, and we, I'm a cisgendered woman. And I think that that is where I can put my energy into seeing, into recognizing that my struggle as a cis woman is very similar to trans women struggle to play sport. I'm aware that we're running out of time. So my last question for you, Rosa, is with this map, how would you like people to engage with it? What, What are you hoping that people will get out of this map? I guess I feel with radical mapping projects, and there've been some really awesome radical mapping projects, such as the spare rib map, which is a map of spare rib was the British Women's Liberation magazine probably the most famous British women's liberation magazine. It had a really large circulation of, um, I think, 30,000 at one point. And it was sold in places like that you could buy it at the local newsagent. So it was it very much like broke into the mainstream and that was its intention. So there's been a great radical mapping project of the businesses and um, women's businesses like bookshops and hotels and, and really mapping that business history across Britain, which the British Library has, um, and people can access it through the British Library. And I guess I found that map really inspiring because I think what it does is it really shows the radical spatial history of our cities that we live in. So I hope that people will look at the radical map and think about the city in a different way. So even if they're not from Sydney, because the map does focus on Sydney, although there are some really amazing examples from Melbourne as well, including the Melbourne Women's Circus, that they think they walk around the city. I would love it if people walked around the city or went for their run around the city and thought, I wonder what other amazing feminists have played sport in this location. You just heard from Rosa Campbell. To find out more about Rosa's work, you can go to www.rosa-campbell.com. That's all for Women on the Line today. We would love to hear any comments or thoughts you have about the program, so please send us an email at womenontheline at gmail.com or give us a call at 3CR on 03 8377. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Women on the Line is a national feminist current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women and gender non-conforming broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music for Women on the Line is by Ripley Kavara. Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from www.3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. I'm Fung Tran. Tune into Women on the Line next week on your community radio station.